Well, good morning, everyone. Nice to see you. Welcome to uh, Fullerton Free. If you're new with us or you're visiting with folks, uh, it's nice to have uh, a whole crew here from the Hope International University women's soccer team, right? Joining us today. Nice to have them here. You guys, I mean, we got to support our local teams, right? We got to make sure we get out here and root for these ladies. They got uh, their season coming up eventually, so we'll want to root for them. But if you're a guest here, and even if you don't play soccer, we're glad you're here, right? We're happy that you're here no matter what. My name is Darren, and uh, I'm excited to open God's Word with you this morning into what is a relatively complicated text. And uh, once again, here in Genesis 9, we find ourselves in a text that has been hotly debated. And if you dig, you can go down a rabbit hole in this text. There are a lot of different theories, theories about what the nature of Ham's actual offense is here, what the nature of Noah's misconduct is here. Uh, There's something interesting in this text that people will expound upon for a long time about the absence of God's voice. This is very interesting. This is the only place where we actually hear Noah speak. These are the only recorded words of Noah. And in the recorded words of Noah, the only recorded words of Noah we've got are him cursing his grandson, which is kind of a shame. But interestingly, every other interaction we've got with Noah is always God speaking and Noah obeying. Here, God is uh, interestingly not speaking in the text. So people will kind of argue about that. There are all kinds of, uh, there are all kinds of hotly contested things in the text. I want to say just a couple of things as we begin, um, two, two main things out of this text that I want to say unequivocally and really clearly as we begin. This text has historically been used, number one, as a justification for slavery and as a justification for hatred and intolerance. I want to tell you that if and when you ever hear someone utilizing this text to justify slavery or intolerance or hatred of any kind, you need to tell those people to shut up. And I mean that in the nicest way, but that's not what this text says, right? That is not what this text says. And when you hear somebody taking God's word and using it in contradiction with the rest of what the word teaches, you have the authority to say that isn't true and it's got to stop here and now. This is not a text that justifies hatred or intolerance or enslavement of any kind. And all we have to do is look at the simple story here, which we'll do in just a minute. We'll see that. I also want to point out that this text is is one that's been used, uh, unfortunately, to justify the covering up of abuse by clergy over time. Uh, we see in this text that Shem and Japheth walk backward and they cover up the nakedness of Noah. And there are some who've misused the text to say, well, here's a good example for the fact that sometimes when our leaders do things that are wrong, or sometimes when our leaders make mistakes, or sometimes when our leaders prove that they're broken and flawed, this is a good example of the fact that we should just sort of hush that up. That also is not taught in this text. And anytime you see someone use this text as a justification for sort of brushing under the rug the abuses or violations of someone in leadership, you might again say shut up to them. That, that might not be your language. That's the way I would say it. I would say shut up. You maybe don't say that. But I just want to say from the get-go, this text doesn't do either of those things. And in all of the preoccupation and all of the different wonderings we might have about what's actually going on here, and there's some great theories. We'll look at a couple of them this morning. What I want you to see is that on the surface of it, there's actually a very simple story with a very simple application. It's the retelling in some ways of a story we've already seen. What we see here as Noah and his family come off the ark is that there's the opportunity for harmony. There's the opportunity for community. There's an opportunity for wholeness and oneness with God and with each other. And very quickly we see that wholeness and oneness thrown into disruption. 
Very quickly we see sin entered into the equation and as a result of that, we see brokenness among people and brokenness among generations even here, right? So it isn't that different than the story of Adam. I mean, there there are significant parallels here. Adam and Eve eat from the fruit of a tree. Noah drinks from the fruit of the vine. Adam and Eve's nakedness is uncovered and they are ashamed because of their sin. And Noah's nakedness is uncovered and he is ashamed because of his failure, right? And there is a covering, right? So even in the story of Adam and Eve that we looked at a few weeks ago, in that story we see God graciously provide a covering for Adam and Eve in the midst of their shame. And once again in this text, we see a covering is made for Noah. I want you to understand that those parallels aren't accidental, that the repetition is not accidental, that the places in which we see themes and overarching values and we see things that we go, this feels very similar, that similarity is on purpose. There's a story and an emphasis we're meant to understand over time. We're meant to see these themes working their way through the Bible. Themes of unity and wholeness and community and sin being introduced, which then brings brokenness and a lack of community and division. And then the opportunity to see covering or restoration or preservation or salvation occur, right? We're seeing that story again here. So let's just look at it as we go. A couple significant things to note. Notice here that at least twice in this text, Ham, uh, one of, by the way, don't name your kid Ham. I don't know. I mean, it's just like, like, you know, even if you love Ham, that's a weird name. Okay, it doesn't matter. That's just my own opinion. If you're here today and you're named Ham, I'm sorry I said that. I take that back. Okay? It's a great name. Uh, in the text, I got to be, care- I got to be careful about what I say. People watching this online, the guy at home named Ham is like, what a jerk. Sorry. Uh, in this, you'll notice that when we see Ham referred to, they always add the parenthetical, which says the father of Canaan, right? So Ham, the father of Canaan, and they don't do that with Shem and Japheth, even though Shem and Japheth have descendants as well. It's important to note that when Moses is writing the book of Genesis, preparing the hearts of the people to enter into the promised land, that he's anticipating some of the questions they will have. Particularly, they're getting ready to go into the promised land and they will be at war with the Canaanites. So Moses is tipping his cap to the people who would read this, the original audience, to say, those that we are going in to do battle with, because God has called us to do that, here's where they come from. When he says, Ham, the father of Canaan, you and I should see a little bit of an exclamation point. There's a little bit of an arrow there going, these are the people whose land we're going in to take, right? These are the people that God has sent us in to occupy their territory. But that will come later. In this case, that's just a little bit of a side note. Let's read this together. It says... Uh, starting in verse 18, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. I mean, we've all been there, right? Uh, this reminds me of a story that happened to me just a couple, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, sorry. I was trying to think like, is there a story like this of me? And I couldn't think of one, but I thought it would be funny just to pretend like there is, but it, there's not, I don't have a, I don't have a drunken naked story. So just, we can, we'll cut that out of the video also. What are we supposed to take from this? This is the one guy, the one guy that God chose to save, right? He says, my heart is grieved that I created man upon the earth, Right. 
And so he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wipe them off the face of the earth. He's trying to create a fresh start. This is the guy God chose to save. A man who repeatedly has been faithful and obedient. And now he gets off the ark and he plants a vineyard. By the way, this isn't happening like within a couple of hours because as you know, it takes a long time to plant a vineyard. It takes a long time to grow the grapes. It takes a long time to ferment the grapes. This whole process. Now we're seeing some time period here, right? But he, he plants this vineyard. He's a man of the soil. There's another parallel with Adam and with Cain, right? He, he, he's a man of the soil. He plants this vineyard. He drinks the, the wine and he gets drunk. And it says not just that he is naked, but that he uncovers himself in his tent, right? What are we supposed to take away from this? Well, first and foremost, understand this is meant to give you a little bit of hope. And you might look at it and go, well, how do I find hope in the failure of God's faithful and obedient man? This doesn't give me hope at all. Well, it should give you hope. It gives me a little hope in recognizing that God uses people who sometimes are faithful and sometimes are obedient and sometimes really screw it up, sometimes blow it. I I would hope that that brings you a little bit of encouragement because you know what, guys? There's not a single solitary human being in this room who gets it right all the time. While you might not have a naked, drunken event in your life, although you may, all of us have moments where even though we've been faithful or even though we've been obedient or even though we've gotten it right in the past, we have these moments where we blow it, where we do something stupid, where we do something we regret, where we end up in a situation that brings dishonor and shame, possibly guilt, brokenness with other people, right? And what I love about this story is that immediately we're seeing that God's man, the one that God chose who'd been obedient and faithful... He has a moment of disgrace here. That God used a man who has good moments and bad moments. These characters are not perfect. They're just like us. What we saw in this story of the flood was salvation, but not transformation. Not total and perfect transformation. God saved a man who still needs ongoing transformation. And so do we, right? The drunkenness, by the way, later would be rebuked. There are places in the Bible that come after this that say drunkenness is wrong. But at this point, that law had not been laid out. So what we see here in the story of Noah is he's actually the the first drunk. And there are people who've... uh, Sorry, he probably doesn't love that recognition, but... um, There are people who've looked at this and they've tried to justify away what happens with Noah. And they've said, well, you know, maybe there'd never been fermented drinks before. Maybe there'd never, you know, maybe this drink, like he didn't know, he just drank this juice and look what happened. Uh, Jesus himself in Matthew says that in the days of Noah, the people were eating and drinking, that they were giving and taking in marriage. The implication of what Jesus says is that they were partying when the flood came, right? So that eating and drinking isn't sipping water. The eating and drinking that Jesus refers to prior to the flood sort of points out that fermented drink already. I don't think that Noah is ambivalent here. I don't think that he's ignorant. I think that Noah makes a mistake. And I think that, and I feel fairly confident in that assessment because I've been there, right? I've been in that place and so have you where we do the wrong thing, where we make the wrong choice, where either in our grief or our frustration or our anger or our loneliness or our sorrow or there are all kinds of things Noah may have been feeling. We don't have any indication in this text of what it is that led Noah to this place. What we know is that he drank of the wine that he grew and he humiliated himself. He ends up in a place where he's in shameful, uh, shameful, humiliating position. What follows is what, what really be, then becomes interesting. It says in 20 and 21, Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Verse 22, and Ham, the father of Canaan, there it is again, the father of Canaan. Ham saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now you look at that and you go, 
Okay, like if I saw something weird like this, I might tell other people too, right? You might go, what's the big deal? I don't understand what the problem is. He saw his father was passed out drunk and naked, and he went out and told Jashim and Japheth, you guys aren't going to believe what I saw. I just saw dad, and he's not wearing any pants or whatever, right? You think that doesn't seem like such a big deal. But when you combine what it says there in 22 with what follows, both the response of Shem and Japheth, and then also Noah's frustration when he hears what Ham had done, you recognize this isn't just Ham seeing something and telling somebody else. There's something else going on here. And, and therein lies a lot of speculation, a lot of theological argument, a lot of conjecture. You can read long, long books about people looking at this and going, what exactly did Ham do? There are some people who feel like this is a lust issue for Ham. There are some people who will look at a text we'll look at actually in a second in Leviticus and say, well, uncovering the nakedness of your father is the same thing as sleeping with your mother, according to the law. So maybe this has to do with incest. Maybe this has to do with some sort of sexual assault. There are all kinds of theories. The bottom line is the text doesn't tell us that. What the text tells us is that Ham saw his father in a shameful, disgraced position and reveled in it went outside and talked to somebody else about it instead of caring for his father, doing something about it. The response of Shimon Japheth stands, I think, in stark contrast to the response of Ham. That's what we're meant to see. You can make all kinds of theories. You can have all kinds of guesses about what's going on here. And there are some interesting ones out there. But at the very base level, the simple story is Noah did something disgraceful and Ham had an opportunity to care for him and to honor him and he didn't take that opportunity, right? Instead, he, he further uncovers, in some ways, he further uncovers the nakedness of his father. What Ham does in effort is a further uncovering. He takes what's happened and he spreads it, right? He tells the story. So in essence, he's further uncovering his father's shame. I, uh, I remember one time when my boys were little, Jack and Hank, I mean, they were probably like three or four, maybe five, and I had to go to Macy's to try on some, uh, I, I need to buy some new jeans. Back then, I was buying jeans at Macy's. It's a much richer guy then, so I wasn't shopping at the Old Navy then. Anyway, I was at Macy's, and I, was, I needed to get some new jeans, and I, I was by myself with these two guys, uh, little guys, and I, uh, I couldn't leave them outside. I needed to try these jeans on, because you know with jeans, they don't all fit the same, whatever, so I got to try these jeans on. So I take my two sons into the changing room with me at Macy's. And it's kind of a busy, it was like a Saturday. There's like, the changing rooms are all kind of full. There's lots of people in there. I take the boys in, I set them on the little seat that's in the changing room and I'm like, just sit still. I don't want you to get kidnapped. Just sit still. I got to try on these pants and then we're going to go. And uh, so I start to try on these pants. Well, what I didn't think about, or it shouldn't have mattered, but I was wearing, at the time I had these uh, a pair of underwear from the Gap that were striped. They were green and blue striped. You probably don't care about this, but it sets up the story. Uh, so I had these stripy underpants, and as soon as I take my uh, as soon as I take my pants off, my boys are like stripy underpants, stripy underpants, stripy underpants. Daddy's wearing stripy underpants, underpants, underpants. And I'm like, shut up, shut up, shut up. And I can hear dudes in the other stalls laughing, right? People laughing, stripey underpants. I'm just trying to try on the jeans. These two kids are mocking me. Then, and this is a little bit embarrassing, but you know, some, this just happens. Uh, sometimes on the waistband of your underpants, uh, you'll get just like a, there's just a tiny little hole. It's not like a massive hole. It's just a tiny little hole where the elastic had pulled away from the fabric. And then they're like, daddy's got a hole in his underwear. Daddy's got a hole. And then Jack's like, dad, maybe instead of shopping for jeans, you should be shopping for new underwear, right? Why are you wearing those? Why are you wearing You know, and I'm like, shut up. I did not buy any new jeans. I just bundled my kids and we left, right? 
It's humiliated, right? Yes, okay, there were striped underpants. And yes, there may have been a tiny hole. You'll be happy to know I've thrown those underpants away now. Right? Those things were true, but I didn't need anybody to escalate it. I didn't need anybody to further uncover my shame and my nakedness, right? I just needed them to be nice. And they weren't, right? Ham further uncovers the nakedness of his father. He further advances his shame. We don't know necessarily what his motivation in this was, but we might be able to take a guess. There are some of us who love to revel in the downfall of our leaders. There are some who love to revel in the downfall of those whose positions we want. There are some who love to revel in the brokenness of others because of the way it makes us feel about ourselves, right? If we can look at other people and we can elevate ourselves, if we can look at other people and we can make ourselves feel a little holier, make ourselves a little, feel a little bit better because we're not the ones who are drunk and naked, there are many, many people in our world and sadly and shamefully many, many people in the church who spend a lot of time defined, defining themselves by pointing out all the things in the world that they're better than. Or all of the brokenness that they see in contrast to their own holiness. We can spend a lot of time seeing the brokenness, seeing the shame, seeing the sin, seeing the guilt of the world in which we live. And we spend all of our time pointing at that as a way to sort of misdirect attention away from our own guilt and shame. Away from our own brokenness. It might not be in the same level and in the same form. But many times we like to point away from ourselves, don't we? If we can get people to look over at the mistakes of other people, look at their drunkenness, look at their nakedness, then the good news for us is they're not looking at us. Now, we don't know necessarily what Ham's motivation is here, but I'm guessing that there's a sense in the heart of Ham where having come off the ark and being one of just a few people who were alive, it was, uh, there was a sense of joy. I think the Germans called that schadenfreude, right? When you feel that pain, joy. That pain joy, you see someone else's pain and you feel a sense of joy reveling in somebody else's failure. And that's what we see in the heart of Ham. Ham comes out, it says in 22, and he tells his two brothers what he'd seen. Then look at Shimon Japheth's response, verse 23. Shimon Japheth took a garment and they laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward. They did not see their father's nakedness. Shim and Japheth do this kind of awkward dance, right? They walk backwards. They won't even look at the disgrace of their father. They find a garment that they can hold between the two of them. And they walk backwards in order to place a a garment over him to cover his shame without ever even looking at him. Well, what they do here, in essence, is modeling God. Right? What do they do here? Well, they, they hear about someone who's naked. Where have they heard this story before? They've certainly heard the story about Adam and Eve being shamed in their sin and being naked. And what did their creator do? What did God, their heavenly father, do in the midst of that nakedness and shame? He didn't revel in it. He didn't point at it. He didn't rebuke them. There was a curse for Adam and Eve, but he lovingly cared for them in the midst of their shame. And he covered them. So for Shem and Japheth, they go, here's our father in a shameful position. How should we respond? The answer is, let's respond the way God does. Let's care for people in their nakedness. Let's care for people in their brokenness. Let's care for people in their shame. How do we do it? And they come up with this, I think, a pretty clever plan to walk backwards and to set a a garment over their father. Now, here's what I want you to see. This isn't them excusing. They're not making excuses for what Noah's done. Interestingly, the text doesn't say anything about Noah's mistake. 
The text doesn't say anything about Noah's guilt. The text doesn't say anything other than telling us that he's in this shameful position. It never, there's never a point where God goes, okay, Noah, and now I want to talk to you about your drunkenness, right? That doesn't actually come up in this text. What we see, though, is Shem and Japheth caring well for their father. But this care for their father is not an endorsement or an excuse of his actions. It's simply them showing honor and care and kindness. He's cared for. His shame is not corrected necessarily in this text. We don't know. We don't know whether his shame is ever corrected by Shem and Japheth. We don't know whether God ever has that conversation with Noah to say, hey, about the nakedness and about the drunkenness, knock that off. We don't know. Maybe God had that conversation with him. Or maybe the shame in and of itself was enough to correct Noah's actions. We also don't have a recorded uh, occurrence of this happening again. I don't know. But Shem and Japheth don't take an opportunity to revel in his pain. They take the opportunity to care for him. They imitate God who covered Adam and Eve in their nakedness. And in this act of kindness, the brothers also correct Ham's response. Does that make sense? So in this act of godly kindness and generosity, they also show a different way. We don't see recorded in this text that Shem and Japheth look at Ham and go, Ham, this was wrong. How dare you? Why did you do this? Why did you, why did you look at our father and then revel in it? We're going to do it a better way. There's, no, there's none of that. Shem and Japheth just do the kind thing. They just do the honorable thing. They just do the godlike thing. And in doing the godlike thing, Ham's actions are corrected necessarily. Does that make sense? There's a different way that's put on display. Can I tell you, there's a great application point for us as people living in a world where there's lots of brokenness and shame. That simply by caring for other people, by honoring for them in the dignity of the fact that they were created in the image of God, caring well for them, we have the opportunity to put on display a different way of living, a God-like way of living. We have the opportunity, and we talk about this a lot, to reveal Christ in our radiant peace, in our revolutionary kindness, right? We have the opportunity to put Jesus on display by caring well for the broken and the shamed. Now, look at 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. Interestingly, when it says knew what his youngest son had done to him, that's where some of the theologians will go, knew what he'd done. He'd just seen him and told about it. So that's where people will go, maybe something more terrible happened here. Assault or incest or whatever. That's kind of where they'll get some of that is in this text. But the baseline, all we can do is guess. What we do understand is that Noah woke up and recognized that he'd been shamed by his son. And so then we see Noah speak for the first and only time in the Bible. And here's what he uses his one shot to say. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Cain, and a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. This is really, if you're Canaan at this point, aren't you like, what the heck? I wasn't even there, right? How come dad's not getting in trouble? Why? How come Canaan's getting cursed? Hello, right? I'm not the one who was in the tent. That's my pops. It seems a little unfair, right? Noah's response. I want you to see in this that what, what I think we're seeing is not a, uh, a, an inspired prophetic utterance by Noah. I don't think this is God's curse. I think this is Noah's curse. And I think Noah's curse is based on Noah's understanding of who Ham is. Does that make sense? So I don't think that what Noah's saying here is, hey, the rest of us have to be against Ham's descendant Cain forever. I think what Noah's saying here is, based on the kind of man Ham is, 
It is natural and, and obvious to me that his descendants will be likewise. And as a result of that, they will always be the enemies of their family. They will always be subjected to service. And we see that played out. We see it played out. This isn't, uh, it's not so much a prophetic utterance as Noah's discernment and recognition that Ham's character would be passed on, resulting in enslavement. The, the note here for me is, my sin affects the future. But I want you to understand that Canaan in this case is not cursed because of the sins of Ham. So this isn't Canaan getting in trouble because of Ham's mistake. When Canaan is cursed or when Canaan falls under the judgment of God, it will happen because of Canaan's sins that follow after Ham. You see the difference? It isn't Canaan being cursed for the sins of Ham. It's Canaan being cursed for the sins of Canaan that will follow after the pattern of Ham. And I can give you some example. We don't have to read this whole thing. But in Leviticus chapter 18 verse 3. God is speaking about the fact that his people should neither live like the Egyptians from whom they've just departed or the Canaanites who they're going in to occupy. He says this in Leviticus 18.3, and we'll just read a couple of these. You'll get the sense of it. He says, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And then he gives a list of what these things are they shouldn't do that the Canaanites do, right? He says, none of you shall approach any of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother, and you shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your mother, it is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, brought up in your family's, uh, in your father's family, since she is your sister. You shall not uncover you, you get the point here, right? And, and if this is the sort of thing that you want to do, you can go read all of Leviticus 18. But again and again, he's using the idea of uncovering nakedness as a pointing towards sexual immorality. You can see the sexual immorality by the time that God says this to the people of Israel, the sexual immorality in the land of Canaan is crazy, right? It's rampant. So what's happening here? Noah is looking at Ham and he's saying, because of the kind of man you are, I can tell already what your descendants will be like. And here's what's going to happen. Your descendants are going to be cursed because of the legacy you leave. And we see that played out. We see absolutely the people of Israel go into Canaan and the people of Canaan are subjected to enslavement, right? That they're wiped out and conquered, not because of the sins of Ham, but because of Canaan's sins that follow after the pattern of Ham. Does that make sense to you? Noah wakes up and he curses Canaan. Not only that, back to Genesis chapter 9. He says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. For the people of Israel, they were wondering, who are these Canaanites? Where do they come from, Right? And Moses, in writing the book of Genesis, is going, hey, you're wondering who our enemies are? You're wondering about their generational wickedness? Well, their generational wickedness starts here 
When Ham saw his father in a shameful position and did nothing to cover it up, but instead reveled in it, that's where it began, and that pattern has lasted for years. A a people who revel in shame. A people who revel in wrongdoing rather than trying to care for one another. Rather than trying to cover it in some ways, right? In Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, it says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. In James chapter 5, verse 19, it says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 4, 8 famously says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. We're not talking about justifying what people have done. We're not talking about brushing it under the rug. We're simply talking about loving people in such a way that we can care for them in the midst of their brokenness. Why? Because like them, we also are broken. Like them, we also have our flaws. We also have our mistakes. There is an opportunity to demonstrate love and Ham misses it. Shem and Japheth demonstrate the love and the care of God by caring well for their father, but they're not excusing what he's done. We all fail, and we live among a people who are just as caught up in the wrestling match between the flesh and the spirit. Romans chapter 7, verse 15 and following says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. You ever feel that? I know the right thing, but I just keep doing the wrong thing. It's because we're in a wrestling match. And if you feel like you're in that wrestling match, you're in good company. Because so do the people sitting next to you. So do the people in in the apartments that live across the street. So do the people in the neighborhoods over here. So do everyone you work with. All of us are in this wrestling match. And what we need is not somebody to point at our shame, not somebody to point at our nakedness, not someone to revel in our failure, but rather someone to care for us well. To care for us well, to demonstrate kindness. Why? Because that's the character and the posture of God. God is revealed. Do we revel in their brokenness and shame? Jesus didn't. I might remind you of John chapter four. In John chapter four, when Jesus was with the woman at the well, And this is a woman who's had multiple husbands and the guy she's living with now is not her husband. He doesn't dance around that. He doesn't pretend like that's not the case. He doesn't excuse what's going on with her. But you know what he does? He looks past her brokenness. He looks past her mistakes. He looks past her exposure. And instead he loves her and he offers her living water. Her response to Jesus is, come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did. Right? She's not shamed by him. She's not been ridiculed by him. What does he do? He offers her a way to find covering. Interesting, we have the opportunity to be ambassadors of that same kind of generosity and kindness in the generation in which we live. Love provokes us to care for the broken and reveal Christ in the way we give honor and kindness even to those who don't know they need it. By the way, Noah was not aware at the time that he needed Shem and Japheth to walk backwards and cover him up. Why? Because he was gone, naked and passed out drunk. He didn't know he needed help. The help that they provide for him, he's not aware of until much later, right? But they provided that, not not for what they'd get out of it, but because it was the right thing to do. Love and service 
or shame and neglect of others will replicate in our circles, in our families, in our lives. If you're the kind of person who loves and serves the broken, or if you're the kind of person who neglects and shames the broken, be certain your children will take that same posture with people who are hurting. Be certain that the people in your circle will pick up that same attitude, that the people in your cubicles near you at work will pick up that same posture to point and shame and revel in the failure of others. It's contagious. But so is service and generosity and kindness. When we put on God and we cover other people in the midst of their brokenness, even when they don't know they need it, we reveal Christ. There's one last thing I want you to see here, and it's actually not in the Genesis text, but it's just an extrapolation based on the Genesis text. Shem and Japheth have the ability to cover their father's nakedness, and they do that, and they're honored for it. But covering is all they can do. And the same is true in our lives and in our world, right? Jesus, by the way, doesn't just cover our sin. Jesus doesn't just cover our sin ultimately. What Jesus does is he eradicates our sin. There's a difference between covering sin or caring for people who are broken and doing away with sin entirely. Listen to this in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 and following. It says, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 1 John uh, chapter 3, verse 5 says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Jesus doesn't just cover up our shame. He doesn't just cover up our guilt. He takes it away. Most famously, I think, when John the Baptist sees Jesus. You remember this from our study in John? When John the Baptist sees Jesus in John 1, he looks at Jesus, and you remember what he says? Behold, the Lamb of God, who what? Takes away the sin of the world. Takes it away. Shim and Japheth do, do their father a great kindness here. They honor him and they serve him. Ham does not. Ham blows it. You and I have the opportunity to do a great honor and a service by caring for the brokenhearted and the shamed and the weary. But we can't do anything other than just sort of help. All we can do is care for them. We can't take sin away. The only way that happens, the only way sin becomes eradicated is through the death and resurrection of Christ, through the saving work of the Lord Jesus who came to the earth and took our sin upon himself, who died on the cross as a substitute, an atoning sacrifice for you and I. He paid the penalty for our sin. He rose from the grave and having not only paid the penalty for our sin, but then proving he's got the power over sin and death, which he then extends to us by his grace. If you're here today, And you're thinking to yourself, well, I'd really like to have my sin covered up. Let me do you one better. How about not having your sin covered up? How about not just being cared for in your shame and guilt, but having your sin and your brokenness and your shame and your guilt taken away by the Lord Jesus? That is available to you today. And as his ambassadors, those of us who've received that saving work of Christ have the opportunity to be ambassadors, not just of caring for the broken, although that's part of it, but also in pointing them to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We're going to close our service this morning with, with more response. We're going to respond through a time of prayer together and a time of singing. I want to I just say really quickly before I go that in this response time we've, we've initiated over the last many months of praying for one another, I think sometimes there is a sense in which this is only available maybe for the people who are in deep darkness 
or dreadful despair. You know, you got some real heavy, overwhelming issue, then if you can work up enough courage and energy to come down in front of everybody else and get prayer without worrying about people judging you or whatever, then come on down and the elders will be here and they'll pray for you. But, you know, like you wouldn't want to, you wouldn't take that risk unless you had something real heavy going on. Can I just throw that away for you real quick? Praying for one another is just part of what it means to be a family. That's just being the body of Christ. We sing together. We study together. We hug each other's necks, right? Being family includes praying for one another. When the elders and the staff and other leaders come and stand in the front here to pray, that's not for people who are in deep despair. Although if you're in deep despair, it's a great place to come. But when I come up here and receive prayer, I came up and received prayer two weeks ago. It was just because I was going to teach at a camp and I wanted prayer to honor God in that, right? It wasn't anything heinous. It wasn't anything heavy. It was just like, man, I'd love to have somebody else join me in approaching God on my behalf and with me. As we respond in an ongoing way over these coming months, there isn't a single person in this room who doesn't need to pray about something. You got a neighbor, you got, you got something going on with your finance, you got something going on with your job, you got something going on with your kids, you got something happening in your life. All of that is perfect opportunity to be family and respond together in prayer. The reason we do this is to demonstrate that this is who we are. We're a family that loves each other and prays. So I just wanted to take away any stigma there might be. If you're sitting here today and you're thinking like, I'd never go up there because I don't want people to think I got something real gross happening. Well, if you got something gross happening, come down here and receive prayer. And if you got something tiny happening in your life, which all of us do, why don't you just let us pray with you? Heck, like that just feels like being Jesus with each other. That's what this next session of response is about. As we sing and as we pray together, I hope you'll take advantage of that. Would you pray with me, God? Thank you for your word. Thank you for the ways in which Shem and Japheth remember your kindness to Adam and Eve and replicate it to their father. It seems unfortunate that they have to do this at all, but it is a source of hope for those of us who recognize that we got really good days and really bad days, really good seasons and really bad seasons, and that you meet us even in our drunkenness and nudity, that you love us, We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you don't just cover up our sin, that you don't just put a garment over the top of us, but that that covering for Adam and Eve, the covering for Noah, is a temporary preservation for a permanent fix that is only accomplished through your death and resurrection. We praise you for that, and we pray now as we respond that you would be glorified in our response. Help us to worship you as one, to honor you together. We pray that in Christ's name, amen.